0: hello, how we doing? Thank you, I appreciate the response. Everybody having a good week? Who here, who here has actually gone to class like in person this week? Okay, good, look at y'all, good. I'm glad that you can still do that. Do you want to say hey to our Zoom people again tonight? No, we love you and we're glad to have you on the interwebs. So I love that y'all wave at them, that, that's just, it's awesome, so. Thank you, guys, for being fun. Uh, well, hey, hope you guys are doing well. Having a great week so far. Um, if you got a Bible, uh, go and turn to Genesis 3. We're going to be there a little bit uh, tonight. If I haven't met you, my name is Kyle. Um, I am the college pastor here at ABC. I've uh, been here for a few years now. Thank you to whoever said, what's up, Kyle? Um, but, uh, yeah, but I'm uh, really glad to have you guys tonight. If you're new with us, uh, so I'm glad that you've joined us uh, tonight. And like Noah mentioned in his prayer, uh, we are starting a new series that we're going to be doing uh, for the next few weeks, at least, that we're calling true-false. Uh, and we're going to be looking at some different lies about God that sound like truth. And I'll kind of unpack that and what I mean by that in a second. But, you know, here in 2020, I think we're all familiar with the phrase fake news, right? You know, our president has kind of coined that term. It got brought up a lot. In 2016 election, still gets used today, lots of fake news about COVID even out there, things like that. I'm not trying to get in that conversation. But um, it's, this coin, it's a term that we're all familiar with, right, these days. Um, and I, I did a little research this week. Uh, I was curious about it. In uh, BuzzFeed, who I would not normally consider a reputable academic source, but in this case, they did some research, and they found that the top 20 fake news stories about this 2016 election actually received more engagement on Facebook, like likes, shares, things like that. The fake news received way more engagement on Facebook than the other 20 articles from the other 19 major media outlets combined. So, like the fake news skyrocketed in, in how it was shared compared to the real stuff that didn't get nearly as much engagement on Facebook. That's because Facebook's the worst thing in our society ever. You know things like that. You know that's because it's what's wrong with the world. But that's neither here nor there. I'm actually old enough to remember a world without Facebook and a world where you had to have a college email address to get on Facebook. Because my freshman class was the first year you could be on Facebook. I'm that I'm that old. Okay, so I'm 33. The year of Jesus. Okay, so. Anyway, but so we all are familiar with fake news. But here's the thing I was thinking about this week with this: you know, what makes fake news so enticing? Like, why do people share some of this stuff? You know, it's not because you know it's outlandish and just completely crazy. It's not like you know, you know, our president's a Martian or like Joe Biden, you know, is secretly running some kind of ninja training ground, you know, somewhere in the Philippines. I don't know. That's a random thing. That's my trail of thought stream of consciousness it's not this kind of stuff that just sounds super crazy it's because the fake news is popular because it sounds kind of true right like it could be true it's kind of maybe out there it's kind of earth-shattering but it has some truth to it otherwise people wouldn't believe it right but it sounds true enough but it has a lie buried in it and that's the issue and you know we all know that all the fake news has some kind of agenda for somebody politically right it's always got an agenda in some way And in that article, they actually discovered that Macedonia, there's this tiny city in Macedonia that most fake news comes from because all the young people there like lost their jobs in the economy and they all just started writing fake news stories to make money through Google AdWords, which is weirdly really weird stuff, okay? But that idea of fake news kind of got me thinking about our series. As we look at Genesis 3 tonight, we're going to look at what I would probably clichély call the first fake news in history, all right? In Genesis 3 from Satan, okay? You can make fun of me for that, but I think we're going to see this. So look, at me, look with me in Genesis 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, starting with the temptation that the serpent's going to give Adam and Eve uh, in Genesis 3. And really, this is going to be the, the beginning of brokenness and the beginning of sin uh, in the world. All right, so starting here in verse 1. Let's go verses 1 through 7. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say—now pay attention to that. Did God actually say, You should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So fascinating story, so much we could say about this. But here in Genesis 3, we have the origin story, if you will, of sin in the world. You know, the, the origin story of brokenness in the world. And if you follow the biblical story, you know that God made the world beautiful. He made the world a perfect place. And he created Adam and Eve, our kind of ancestors some many, many years ago, placed them in this garden, and he gave them jobs. He gave them uh, the jobs to represent God in the world, to cultivate the world. Uh, he gave them everything they needed. He gave them, you know, everything that they would ever really want He gave them work to do. He told them even to be fruitful and multiply. And he does this while even walking with them in the garden every day. It's this picture of perfection. And he gives them the complete freedom to do whatever they want except for one thing, right? The one thing is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see here in Genesis 3, right, that then enters the serpent, who Revelation 12 would tell us is Satan. He's the the adversary. He's a fallen angel who's rebelled against God, who's destined for destruction, But he wants to lead anybody he can to destruction with him. And so what does he do? What does he do for Adam and Eve? You know, what's his tactic? Well, he gets Adam and Eve not to just outright rebel against God, right? But what does he do? He gets them to question God. He gets them to question the goodness of God and telling them to eat this fruit of the tree so they can get the knowledge of good and evil. And really what Satan does is he plants this idea in the minds of Adam and Eve that God is holding out on them. Either there's this good thing there that God's holding out of them, that God really doesn't have their best interest at heart, and really, they they know better than God. They know what they really deserve. They know what they really want. They would be better rulers of the earth even than God, and that's how he tempts them. I love the way one theologian, John Salemer, he said this. He said, the snake implied by his questions that God was keeping this knowledge from the man and the woman. While the sense of the narrative in the first two chapters has been that God was keeping this knowledge for the man and the woman. So God was not really holding out on them. He was wanting them to find their definition of good in God. But Satan, the serpent, tempts them to say, no, God's really holding out on you. And the reason God told them, you know, to not eat the tree was because he wanted them to trust him and obey him. But even more, if you look at Genesis 3, the serpent says that if they eat the fruit of the tree, they're going to become like God. But the truth of the matter is that Adam and Eve were already as much like God as they could be. They were made in the image of God. And so actually in disobeying God, they become less like God, not more like him, right? But like he always does, Satan twists God's words. He leads them to disobey. And their disobedience leads to God casting them out of the garden, right? And that's the origin of sin and brokenness in the world. That's kind of what we see even today. And the truth is, as we start this series, is that Satan is still at this, you know, task of twisting the truth today. He's still at, you know, at the task of causing us to question God and implanting lies that sound like truth. You know, God, Satan doesn't come to us and say, how about you just like disobey God completely and like destroy your life? How's that sound? He doesn't come to us with that kind of stuff because no one's going to do that. You know, but instead, Satan comes to us so many times with his promises, you know, of real fulfillment in life, of, of beauty, of enlightenment. If we would just depend less on God, trust him less, and look to something else, that we'd be happier, right? We'd be more fulfilled. And so he gives us a lie that sounds like truth in an effort really to erode our trust in God and lead us to something else. Because the devil's really talented at making sin look good, right? He's really talented at making sin look good. He makes lust look like simply getting some release because you're stressed. He makes arrogance look like just being confident in who you are. And he makes self-righteousness look like being just a really religious person. He's really good at making sin look good on the outside. And so what we're going to do in this series is ask some questions about how do we fight against some of these lies. You know, this gospel fake news, if you will, that we're fed so often. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of these lies over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to expose them. We're going to hold them up to the truth of Scripture. But then we're going to ask, why are we so easily tempted sometimes to believe in these things as well? Why are we so tempted to believe in some of these things? So that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks uh, with this series that we're going to call True False. And the first lie we're going to look at tonight uh, is the one that you've heard a lot. It's God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy is line number one tonight. There's a note sheet on your table if you want to use that to take some notes um, if you are a note taker, all right? So let's, let's talk about this for just a minute. You know, so why uh, is this lie so tempting? Because at, at face value, you've been in ch- if you've been in church for very long, you're probably already thinking of some of the reasons. This is not a completely true statement, right? We, we understand that God has a lot bigger things for us in life than simply our happiness. You, we know He allows us to struggle for specific reasons you know, for something bigger, you know. But at the same time, I think all of us actually wrestle with this lie way more than we want to be honest with, way more than I want to be honest with because how often do we think even just in our hearts that you know what if if i just had this one thing i'd be happy if i just had this thing i'd be happy You know, if I just had a girlfriend, I would finally be happy. You know, if I could just get done with school and graduate and get a real job and make money, (laughs) I'd finally be happy. You know, if COVID would just be over with, right, (laughs) tomorrow, I would finally, we'd all be happy, right? You know, but if COVID would just be over tomorrow, I would finally be happy again. And we can go on and on and on with the things that we're like in our hearts. If I just had that, I would finally be happy. And we say those things in our hearts, but really what that means is that we're saying our ultimate happiness lies in our circumstances, and there's a problem in that, and that's when Satan steps in, and he begins to speak these lies that we believe. He says, you know, well, you know, don't you think God really wants you to be happy? Doesn't God want you to be happy? Of course he does, so yeah, I know that there's this guy that you shouldn't date, but I know you're really just feeling like you really need someone to date, so how about you just say yes to him asking you out and go out? I know you know you shouldn't date him, just do it, because I mean, really, you deserve that, right? You deserve someone to go out with. That'll make you happy, and we believe that lie, And later in life, that lie can become, you know what? Like, I know your marriage is struggling right now. I know your marriage is hard. But doesn't God want you to be happy? Don't you deserve that? So how about you just get a divorce and go find somebody else you're more compatible with? You know, you you deserve that. You know, and we hear these lies, and we can buy into this. And Satan is so good at this because as human beings, we're wired for happiness, right? Like, what's in our Declaration of Independence? One of our unalienable unalienable rights, right, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? It's, it's in our DNA that we, we want to pursue happiness. We're designed this way. And it's a hard question to ask when we think, you know, well, why wouldn't God give me, well, why would God give me the desire for certain things? You know, desires for things like love, intimacy, fulfillment. Why would God give me these desires, but then deny me a way to fulfill them? Why would he ask me to suppress them? Isn't God good? Isn't God loving? Like, why would, he want me, why would he hold out, quote unquote, on me in this way? But isn't that the same thing that Satan did? Or the same thing that Satan questioned Adam and Eve with? That said, well, isn't God holding out on you? Doesn't God want you to be happy? Why don't you take of the fruit and eat it? Wouldn't that be better? It's the same lie. You know, why not become like him? And that's the same lie there. And the thing is I know most of it, most of us in the room are probably not struggling with like crippling addiction you know to things like sex money food things like that you know I don't think we have too many like hardcore addicts in the room so we we, we can help you but I know that we all have this inward bent to to fi- trying to find our own happiness and find our ultimate happiness in life you know in stuff in things we try to find our fulfillment in the things of this world instead of a relationship with God but the hard truth that we're going to unpack tonight is that God doesn't just want you to be happy. Right? He has something much bigger for you. And to answer that question, we gotta look at the, the, what the Bible says about what is God's ultimate priority in your life? Like what's God's chief design? What's his goal he's trying to accomplish in your life, every person in this room? And to do that, we first had to be honest about life. You know, because 2020, like I think I mentioned this last week, 2020 has been like a prime illustration of just like the brokenness of the world, right? <laughs> that sin has wrecked the world, that things are just jacked up, you know? And, you know, honestly, even before 2020, the world was not a perfect place, right? And I love the way that Job 14.1 says this. Uh, Job fourteen one, I think it's on the screen, says that man who is born of a woman, and really it's like any person born of a woman, is few of days and full of trouble. It's like the Bible's version of like, of like hey, life stinks, then you die, You know, that's like the Job version of that, you know. And so don't tell me the Bible's not honest about life, okay? It doesn't paint a rosy picture of the world. You know, Job tells us life's going to be hard, and that's reality. But life also has lots of happy moments, too. We're not unaware of that. But in the times that when the the bad seems to outweigh the good, that's the times that we struggle with what God is really up to in the world. And I think that's why so many people in the world, they want to reject the idea of God. You know, they, they ask the question, you know, how can a God who's all-loving, who's all-powerful, how can he allow some of the brokenness that we see in the world to exist? And honestly, they would be right, and that answer would make perfect sense if God's ultimate goal for us was just to make us happy and just to have us live a comfortable, easy life. But that's not God's ultimate priority for us. And so what does the Bible say? God's priority is for us in life. I'm going to give you just a couple of verses. We could spend like an hour just reading scripture here, but they'll be on the screen as well. But I gave them to you on your note sheet if you want to have them as references. Let me just give you a, couple of, like, a quick survey of a few verses that show us God's priority for our lives. Ezekiel 36, 23 says, "'I will honor the holiness of my great name. "'The nations will know that I am the Lord. "'That is the declaration of the Lord God "'when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight.'" Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Matthew six thirty three says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Ephesians 1, 4 says, For he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. And 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. And we could go on and on with these verses, but we see the point is this, is that in everything God does in the world, his ultimate goal is his glory. His ultimate goal is his glory. And that means his ultimate concern for us is not our happiness, but it's our holiness. It's our holiness. And now I've heard so many preachers throughout the years, they mean well with it, but they pit holiness and happiness against each other like they're enemies or something, and I think that's really a false dichotomy. It's not a helpful way to think about it, and I'll say more about that in a minute, but we see here with these verses, just a few of them, we see that God's ultimate priority for us is to be holy, not just happy, and that makes a lot of sense if you consider just so many stories in the Bible, right? Like Paul, probably one of the, you know, the most righteous people, the, uh, one of the most devout Christians to ever live. His life was rough. Like if you look, like, look at his life in Acts, Dude, like God tells him from the moment he gets saved, hey, you're going to suffer for my name. How's that for like the moment you become a Christian? Someone says, all right, thank you for becoming, I'm glad you became a Christian. Now your life's going to be rough. You know, like that would, it's not the most inviting, you know, warm invitation to be a Christian, but that's what God told him. And we see the book of Job, you know, like just look at Job's life. He lost everything, his kids, his possessions, his health, his livelihood. And then his wife and his friends sit around and blame him and say, man, it's something you did that made God do this to you like some kind of friends. You know, his wife literally tells him, hey, just just curse God and die. Guys, that's not the kind of woman you want to marry is the woman who like when you're like in depression and lost everything just tells you to die. Not the kind of woman you want to marry, all right? You know, but like, you know, but the point of the book, if you read it's not that Job should be just like optimistic and read a Hallmark card and feel better about his life and just know that God's like doing something in this. Like the point of the book is that even when he lost everything, that Job could know the glory of the holiness of God and that Job could be holy as well. Like, the end of the book is weird when God just kind of goes off for, like, chapters on how, like, he made the Leviathan in the ocean and all this kind of stuff. It's weird. But the point is that God was going to be glorified even in the midst of his suffering because God's main goal in Job's life was not for him to be happy and comfortable, but to become more holy. To become more holy. So, while happiness may come and go depending on our circumstances, holiness is always going to be there. You know, we, we can be holy even when we're not happy, and we actually we can definitely be happy and not be holy And if you think about what holy means, any good church kid in here can tell me that holiness to me, it means to be what? To be set apart, right? We use that a lot in the church, that's good. But to be holy is to be set apart to do something. To be holy is to be set apart to pursue a life that reflects God's character. It's to be set apart to reflect God's heart in the world. And it's to reflect the way that God has designed us to live in the world. And that's why the lie that God just wants you to be happy is so dangerous. Because here's the thing. The devil would be so happy for you to be just happy and satisfied in this life apart from the holiness of God. He wants you to be really happy in this life apart from God's holiness. And Satan will do whatever it takes to get you just to focus on your own happiness apart from God's holiness. The devil would love for you to be perfectly happy in this life as long as you're not holy. He knows that happy, unholy people go happily to hell. Right? So he wants you to be as happy as you can apart from God's holiness. So that's the first part of this lie. But there's also a second part that we have to talk about, and that's on your sheet there. There's a second side to this lie, and it's this. is that, yes, God doesn't just want you to be happy, but also the second side is this, that the other lie is that God doesn't care if you're happy because that's just as untrue. To say that God doesn't care that you're happy is also a lie, and it's not true. So here's the thing. If you want to remember one idea from tonight, remember this, all right, that God wants you to find your happiness in his holiness, all right? If you don't remember anything else from this, remember God wants you to find your happiness in his holiness. Ligon Duncan, a pastor, said it this way. He says, our chief and highest purpose, goal and end in life is God's glory. That's what we live for. Whereas many of our contemporaries think that God is the chief means to our high end of happiness, we do not believe that God is a means to an end. He is the end. He is the reason and aspiration for which we exist. There is no ultimate happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment and joy apart from him. And there is a vital and there's an inseparable relationship, relationship between true happiness and holiness. I love Jared Wilson, um, the way he says it. He's a pastor, actually he's an author now. He says, our priority is not to pursue a particular feeling, but to pursue a particular fellowship. Not a particular feeling, but a particular fellowship. But for us to really understand this, we have to differentiate real quick the difference between happiness and, and joy. Because typically we think of happiness in a very different way than the Bible talks about happiness. It talks about it differently. Because you know, when we think about happiness, we think about you know, a feeling that we get based on circumstances. You, know, you get a good grade and a test, right? You're happy. You're more happy than if you didn't. And if you get asked out on a date, you're more happy than if you didn't. If you get a raise at work, you're happy, you know? And that, honestly, that's like, if that's you, that means you're a normal human being. Like, congratulations, you're like a normal functioning person in the world. Okay, that's good. Like, we, we, we should be happy. If you don't get happy with those things, you get sad all the time. Like, yeah, that's not good. You know, like, it's good to be happy, you know? That's part of being normal. But joy is something deeper. Joy is something much deeper than simply an emotion. But joy is a deep-rooted happiness that isn't going to be changed by our circumstances, Jared Wilson, again, says that joy is the conviction that no matter our circumstances, we are secure in the sovereign God who loves us. I love that. And uh, me and Jared, our student pastor here, were talking this week about this, and he gave me this quote from Tim Keller, and I love this. He said, or not he said, Tim Keller said, through Jared, that joy is gospel buoyancy. Bu-bu- I can't say that word, Buoyancy. Like a buoy that floats, all right? Joy is gospel buoyancy. Because think about a buoy, you know, like a little the thing that floats in the waves if you've ever been to the beach. Now think about that thing. That's a weird word, by the buoy. You say that three times, you feel weird, all right? But think about a buoy in the waves. Like when it gets hit when it gets hit by a wave, what does it do? It'll go down, it comes back up. It may get covered up, but it rises back up, right? And in many ways, joy is gospel buoyancy because no matter what happens in our life through our circumstances that we can get right back up, that we can rise above those things because we have the hope of the gospel as our hope and assurance to bring us through that, to that, that God is with us, that God is all we really need. He's gonna get us through whatever it is that we face in life. That joy is this anchor, it's this buoy you know, that was able to lift us out of whatever we're going through. It's like Hebrews six nineteen 20, through 20 says. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That joy is an anchor for our soul no matter what we're going through. It's something much deeper than simply an emotion that may come and go. But here's the thing. The devil wants to promise this kind of stuff too. He's not ignorant of this. He wants to promise us fulfillment in life in all kinds of things. And that's part of Satan's scheme that he wants to use like good gifts that God has given us as a way to tempt us. But he'll take those good gifts and he'll twist them into something different. For example, like we're created for intimacy and sex is a good gift from God, but Satan will twist it and want us to find fulfillment in porn or sex outside of marriage. You know, we're created to enjoy food and to enjoy a good meal. Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the land that we'll enjoy a meal together in the new creation. But Satan could twist that and make us a glutton. Or maybe make us view, view food as a medicine that we simply use to medicate our souls when we're going through a hard time. That we get even addicted in that kind of way. And like C.S. Lewis said in one of his books, The, the Screwtape Letters, he said it through one of his characters. If you have read The Screwtape Letters, you should totally read that. It's a fantastic book. But in that book, he says that Satan's plan for us is that we should have an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. So the idea is that Satan wants us to go back to whatever thing we're trying to find fulfillment in. He wants us to go back to that thing over and over again for fulfillment. But every time we go back to it, it's not quite as good as it was the last time, that we need more. And then the next time, it's not quite as good as it was next time, so we take a step further in whatever it is until we find ourselves so far along doing things we never said we'd ever do because over and over again, the fulfillment wasn't quite the same before, so we had to go farther. And that's Satan's scheme in our life to help us or to make us try to find fulfillment in things outside of the real place we're meant to find fulfillment. And that's in our relationship with God. That's his scheme. And the problem is the things of the world, you know, material things, even though they are good gifts from God that God has given us, they're never going to be enough for us. They're never going to be enough. There's always going to be, you know, as we've heard before, that that God-shaped hole in our hearts that we were created for And only Jesus will ever be enough that we're created to find our happiness ultimately in his holiness to find fulfillment. That's how we were designed. You think about the way Jesus talked to his disciples. Jesus promised his disciples pain in the world, including Paul, like we mentioned. But he promised his disciples pain in the world. He was really honest about their lives. He told the disciples they would be threatened and accused and exiled and maybe tortured. Maybe some of them even die. That I think 11 of the first 12 disciples all were martyred in some way. But consider John sixteen twenty through 22, when Jesus makes a promise, even in the midst of this pain. In John 16, he says this, he says, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament.'" So he was honest about how things were going to be rough in life. He said, "'You'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish.'" For joy that a human being has been born into the world. So the thing about pain that Jesus talks about is this, is that even our pain in life is a promise. Our pain is a promise, a promise that even in the worst suffering in life, that for a Christian, that pain will ultimately somehow be turned into joy in eternity. It's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So for a Christian, our prayer should not be, hey God, just give me things that make me happy. You know, God, make make my life comfortable and easy and make me healthy and wealthy and just kind of let me coast through life. That's not our prayer. But instead, our prayer is this, is that God Don't give me more so I can be happy, but give me more of you so I can find my happiness in your holiness. Give me more of you. God, I want what you want. I want whatever brings you the most glory, even if it means that it's hard in life. But that's what I want. Your will be done, not mine. Because like Jesus said, to find our life, we have to lose it. And that losing is sometimes hard, but it's where we find the ultimate fulfillment as we give our life away to know Jesus. And when we let go of seeking this temporary happiness, when we're finally freed up to find joy in our Savior, it will transform our life. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we, we're gonna enjoy being sad. God, Jesus isn't calling us to be like masochists and like, you know, walk around in sackcloth and ashes on campus all the time. That's not how Christians are called to be. You know, that's weird. Like we're not called to like intentionally find ways to be sad. <laughs> that's not the, the way the Christian life is supposed to be. And also does not mean that we can't pray and ask God for comfort? Does it mean that we can't pray and ask God for stuff that we need? Does not pray that we can't ask God can't pray and ask God for healing that the Bible tells us to pray for healing for the sick, to pray for what we need, to pray for comfort. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for those, for those things, but it means that even as we pray those things, we pray, Lord, your will be done. And then we have to remember that true joy, that our true happiness in life is not going to be found in our circumstances because that will change in 2020 by the hour. It feels like, right? It can change so quick. But instead, we have to have our true joy by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's never going to leave us, who's never going to forsake us. But he is with us to the end. And like we mentioned last week, he's working the story to a good end. So God doesn't just want you to be happy, but instead he wants you to be eternally happy in his holiness, which is so much more than the devil could ever give to you, and so much more than the world could ever give to you. And may promise it but it will never be enough. Jesus is the only thing that's enough. So that's the first lie that we'll deal with tonight. So what we're gonna do is I want you guys to take a few minutes to discuss at your table. Uh, And that might've been the shortest message I've done in a while. That's actually kind of good. So um, usually I'm a little bit longer. So well, hey, with that, we'll give you guys about 10 to 15 minutes uh, to discuss. And uh, then I'll come back up and uh, dismiss us. And so there's three questions on your sheet for you guys to chat about. It's also gonna be on the screen. Those words are really big. We didn't use this screen last year. That's a big screen. Okay, anyway, so, yeah, so you guys discuss at the table and then I'll come back, in, back up and dismiss it in a few minutes. Um, but let me pray for you guys real quick uh, before you discuss, okay? Father, we come tonight just acknowledging the fact that it's so easy for us to wanna to find our, our ultimate fulfillment in the things of this world, that it's so easy for us to base... Um, our happiness simply in the circumstances. Lord, I know it's been easy for me just this week and the past few months to feel so tossed back and forth like I'm tossed on waves of every new thing that's crazy in the world. And it's so easy for us to feel just honestly kind of overwhelmed and drowning in that sometimes, Father. We want to come and admit that, Lord, but also we want to come and remember that you've promised us trouble in the world, but you also have told us that you will be with us and that you have a much bigger plan for us, Father, not to, not to find our, our happiness and fulfillment simply in circumstances in this life, but to find our ultimate contentment and fulfillment in you and who you are for us. Does it doesn't mean that we're always gonna perfect that? It's a constant fight that we have to battle every day to, to continue to fix our eyes on you, to find satisfaction in you. But I pray for, for myself, for every student in this room, Lord. I pray that you would allow them to um, lift their eyes above their circumstances and lift lift their eyes to you, the Lord of heaven and earth, who wants to have a relationship with them, who wants to provide peace, provide love, joy, all the things that we really want in life but really can't ever seem to find outside of you. And I pray for anyone in this room that hasn't begun a relationship with you, that hasn't began to follow Jesus, I pray tonight they might uh, do that. I pray they would ask someone, ask me, what it means to become a Christian, what it means to follow Christ. We love to talk with him about that. But I pray you'd help us tonight to realize that while you care deeply about our happiness, you want us to find our happiness in your holiness, not in something else that's simply a broken vessel that can never satisfy. We love you. I pray that you would guide our discussion tonight. pray in Christ's name, amen.